the city councilman in the area. And the goals that he set were, I'll support the project if there's no loss of travel lanes, no loss of parking lanes, and if the Department of Transportation is comfortable with the plans and if I'm comfortable with what they say. The 90s, we were like the first city to have a blue-colored bike lane and, and a lot of other innovations that were first happening in Portland. 80s, we had bike-friendly mayors. We had a bike-to-work day downtown. The Bureau of Engineering has what they call a complete street program that never really actually produces complete streets. If you define them as being safe for all modalities, having bus lanes, bike lanes, and car space. This is Bike Talk, and today we have Rock Miller on. And Rock, you are the engineer who is going to design the Sunset for All bike lanes. And I hear that you're well known in the bike lane designing industry. That's right. We also um, have Jonathan Mouse on. So, Rock, can you tell me how this all came about? Sunset for All, I know about. We're trying to put in this protected two way. Yeah, I know Terrence Houston, that's kind of one of the lead advocates for the Sunset Project. I've been around for a long time. You can see my gray hair. The listeners can't, but I'm semi-retired. I always had a passion for doing bike infrastructure. And when Terrence asked me if I could help to move this project from its current status to the next step, I'd been giving him some advice more or less for the last year or so. And then he kind of gave me a big ask a few months ago, said, if you could put together a little design team and remember, we really don't have a lot of money. Do you think you could take the project to the next step, which would go from a very high level concept drawings? You've seen the renderings. Those are about as detailed as the idea is right now. And our plan is to basically take it to where it's realistic measurements of the street. We know how much space is for cars, how much space is for bikes, how much space is for buffers. And it'll go into some detail about how intersections and some of the challenging areas of the street will be uh, treated. And I've done that for a lot of other communities, and I've kind of watched on the sidelines from down here in Orange County for what's been happening in the city of Los Angeles and felt that if there was an opportunity for me to kind of come in and try to work with the people that are responsible for operating and maintaining the city, that we could do a high-level project. I've seen a lot of the work that the city's done. They're trying real hard, but generally speaking, when I've done a project, I kind of get way down into the weeds and I start worrying about details and things like that. And I'm hopeful that by getting into a higher level of detail, we'll produce a project that will address some of the issues that I sometimes hear about some of the early implemented projects that are done generally with paint and posts and things like that. Great opportunity for me. Pretty much a charitable project, but I need something to do. And this is a great thing to do. And it's a great time. I was going to say that you've done this many times before, protected bike lanes? Quite a few times. Locally, my best known project to me, at least, is the cycle track in Redondo Beach, which goes from the Redondo Beach Pier north to the Hermosa Beach city limit. It's different than Sunset in many ways in terms of the traffic, but it's the concept we'd probably end up with for the Sunset project where we basically narrowed the street down. There are bike lanes on the street now, just as there were on the street in Redondo Beach. Bike lane space goes against the curb on one side of the street or the other, and the traffic gets pushed to the other side. And at least the Redondo Beach project is really nicely and heavily uh, landscaped. So it both looks good, it works for bikes, and it feels good for bikes. And every time I go out there, I get excited when I see all the five-year-olds and six-year-olds riding with their parents in the bikeway and kind of the final test of the bikeway. 
I've also done a lot of separated bikeway projects in other cities, much, much further away. Well, also nearby, I did some of the earlier work in Long Beach when that city was first trying to become bike friendly, the project in downtown Long Beach and a few others. But I've had some opportunities. I worked for a large multinational company up until a few years ago, and they had many offices in Canada. And the project I'm probably the proudest of in terms of what it took to deliver it and what it's done is actually in Calgary, Alberta. I ended up spending about two months worth of my life up there working with local bike advocacy leadership, the city administration, got into a fairly good working relationship with the mayor who was in favor of the project, but didn't feel comfortable bringing it to the city unless it got a strong vote of the city council. We ended up wading deeply into the politics of generating uh, yes votes for bike infrastructure. That project was open in 2015 and it's been a pretty tremendous success in terms of they measure everything in Canada. So they know how many more bike commuters there are, how many more people are entering the downtown on the bikeways than we're doing it before the project. And the success of the project has really been through the roof. We did a couple other projects not too far from Calgary and Canada's Edmonton. If you're a hockey fan, you know those two places. Edmonton, a little bit more similar to what the Sunset Project will probably look like. It was a four-lane street. It's still a four-lane street. It has a two-way cycle track on one side of the street, and it's been generally a pretty good success as well. I haven't seen as many measurements in Edmonton, but I know from tracking everywhere I've done a project, I tend to follow on with both the bike people and the city administration that I know. And I generally know if it's not working, I'll help fix it. And if it is working, I'll generally be proud of try to do it in other areas. I've uh, made recommendations on other bike projects really throughout the country. And I do a lot of discussion with some of the other bikeway designers. Jonathan probably knows Peter Coons real well in Portland. Peter and I have exchanged a lot of ideas about how to do bikeways. We both were traffic signal design engineers earlier in our career before there was a lot of demand for bike infrastructure. And it's been just kind of a natural to create a path for bikes along the same route as the streets, redo the traffic controls so that the bikes kind of have their controls and the cars have their controls. And it's done well. Everything works really well. Also visited all the places in Europe that everybody points to as saying it's a great place for biking. Taking notes, other people hang out in the art museums, and I'm taking pictures of the cycle tracks in Amsterdam mm -hmm. and Copenhagen. Somebody like said that pictures of the cycle tracks in Amsterdam are like the puppy pictures of the bike social media world. There's a lot of pictures of Amsterdam and all the cities in the Netherlands. Melissa and Chris Bruntlett, who used to live in Vancouver, where I've also looked at a lot of infrastructure. They're not in Amsterdam. I can't remember what city they're in in the Netherlands. Delft. But Delft? I think Chris was on your show, I think, a, yeah. a month or two ago. Yeah, they've been pretty strategic in helping to export and import ideas from uh, European capitals. And I told you I worked in Canada. It was actually easier for me to do what I think are in innovations in Canada because the cities and the provinces there have a lot more authority to design things the way they feel. Whereas here in the U.S., we have this manual on uniform traffic control devices that slowly but surely allows us to do things that I've been able to do freely in Canada. I'm hopeful that some of the things I've been able to do in Canada to alleviate some of the conflicts you get when you don't do bike signal, I'm hopeful we'll be able to do that in Los Angeles. And the fact that I'm not on the hour for this project, I'll basically be working to try to work with the city to get permission to do more experimental treatments such as you see in all my other really good projects. Jonathan, you look like you might have wanted to say something. No, I'm just listening. 
Yeah, just nodding. These are all so many of the important elements around protected bike lanes. Rock's coming at it from a much different place than I am, but we intersect in a lot of ways as well. So what's the stage here? This is the design phase. It's very, very high level conceptual now. They measured the width of the street and figured out where to put the travel lanes, where to put the park lanes, where to put bike lanes and how much space will be left over. The renderings always showed the facility to go on the ocean side of Sunset, which would be, I guess, the south side based upon the compass. There's been a lot of dialogue with the neighborhood. And whenever you have to make up your mind on which side something will go, there are all of a sudden good reasons to put it on both sides. So relatively early in the process, we will be looking at whether the south side is the right side or whether the north side is the right side. And from a nuts and bolts standpoint, that for me at least, is looking at the amount of conflicting traffic cars that would turn across the bikeway, signals that are T's instead of four-way intersections, things like that. So I'm still not sure at this point where it's going to be, but there will be some kind of science behind where we ultimately put it, as well as some public review so that we're pleasing as many as possible. My experience has been whatever side you put it on, people will wish it was also on the other side. So seeing that in some of the places in Europe right now where they've got one ways on both sides and all of a sudden want to go the other way on all the facilities because they don't want to cross. Yeah, well, that is actually something that several people have brought up in the bike community saying that, you know, they don't want to have to cross the street. They think it should be on both sides. Mm -hmm. But then Sunset for All is saying that that can still be done later. The kind of constraints of this project are there's been dialogue with the city councilman in the area. And the goals that he set were, I'll support the project if there's no loss of travel lanes, no loss of parking lanes, and if the Department of Transportation is comfortable with the plans and if I'm comfortable with what they say. So that kind of is a given that we only can rearrange the space of what's there. If there were opportunities to take any of those and reallocate the space, we could do a different project. But I will admit, as basically a traffic engineer, there's a fairly high volume of traffic on Sunset. And I think it would be probably a challenge to expect the cars to go some other way. Also, the segment of Sunset we're talking about really doesn't have any parallel routes. I'm immediately leaving downtown past the South Edge of Dodgers Stadium and then down to the Hollywood. Really no, no alternate routes. So uh, the councilman has said no, no loss of travel lanes. And the city had experimented with losing some travel lanes in some of the other projects a couple of years ago. And some of them have been restored. I would hate to see that happen. So no loss of traveling, no loss of parking spots? There will probably be a modest loss of parking to provide for the ability to see bikes, particularly at uncontrolled intersections. A lot of times there's already a driveway or it's not possible to park there or there's a bus stop. But that's one of the things that the project will have to identify is exactly what would the parking needs be? Can it be restored? Is it an area where the parking's not needed? I've done windshield scans of the street quite a few times since all this started happening. And I know there are some blocks that really don't have very heavy parking, but I don't know if we might find a soft spot later if we can show that over a seven-day period, there was one car parked and no cars parked most of the time. But the initial proposal will be to do what we can without loss of travel and parking lanes. Have you the, the left turn the lanes also will be something that's interesting. There's some long blocks where there's probably no need to turn left. And if we maintain a full left turn lane, that's 10 feet that we can convert to another purpose. And is there going to be community input through the process? This is still a pretty preliminary phase of the project. 
what probably happens is if the office that kind of has the last say to veto the project is more or less comfortable with it, he will probably say, yeah, let's take this out to a greater public review. One of the things that's unique about this project at this time is that although the city staff at the Department of Transportation are aware of the project and have had some early preliminary discussions with them, there aren't city resources available currently to advance the project. And so it's basically being advanced through the neighborhood effort. I'm sure you and a lot of people are aware that there's a GoFundMe type crowdsourcing program underway right now. They've already generated about two thirds of the target goal they're looking for. And I'm pretty confident that they'll get the rest. Hopefully some people listening will send in a dollar or two. I don't. Um, I know they will want me to say, even if you can't afford a substantial donation, they are looking for a quantity of people so they can say we actually got contributions. Sounds a lot better than we got a contribution of $50,000 in one person. And there, there's an angel person that's supposedly going to match it in the end, but their goal is to raise the 5000 through basically holding up. I said 25. They're at 25. They're going for 50. Last I checked, they're about 28 or 29 right now has been raised. That's great. What's the money for? Um, I have a person that is actually going to be doing the CAD drafting of the drawings. There's a limit to what I can do in my personal time. I've squeezed him to do it as a semi-nonprofit, but he needs to make a living. And I'm hopeful in the end that he'll become one of the younger great bikeway designers out there. Basically, the plan is I'll be determining how to do the treatments, how to draw the plants. He'll be drawing them basically the way I hope to see them. We will then show them to the city if they like it. We will go to the city councilman, see if he likes it. I don't know exactly how it'll unfold. I can tell you from projects like my work in Calgary, you can't have enough public outreach meetings on a project like this. There needs to be a feeling at the policy level that it is a very popular and widely supported project. No elected officials want to lose their jobs simply because of bike infrastructure. And you know, as well as I do, it's, there have been some relatively close calls around here where politicians have done aggressive things and it's kind of blown up in their face. So yeah. we don't want to see that happen there. We have some opposition to the bike lane from people in the bike community, what you might call the bike community, people who seem to be comfortable in the striped lanes. Some of them even don't use the striped lanes, but they like the fact that they're there. And they have concerns about people at intersections, things really that maybe you could say about protected yeah. lanes in general. Yeah. With respect to intersections, that tends to be the key difference between when I do infrastructure and when I see infrastructure in other areas. I do an assessment of the amount of car bike conflict and car pedestrian conflict, and I always make sure that my finished product has reduced that. And if you don't do much of anything, if you limit yourself to posts and plastic and paint, you're probably increasing conflict or increasing the type of conflicts that cars and bikes are aware of. If you do a more thorough job, I'm a huge fan of bike signals. If the signal is green for bikes, then cars don't turn across their path. And that's what attracts the really, really young bicyclists. I don't know specifically who you were talking about, but the group that's very comfortable with riding bikes in the street, taking the lane, we're definitely not looking at this type of infrastructure for that type of a bicyclist. They are out there. They generally are nervous about seeing this type of facility. And I understand the nervousness. There's a lot of concern over if they're required to ride in this type of facility, that will be a nightmare. And their goal is to make sure that they can't be required to ride in the facility if they don't wish to. 
I know in the case of our Redondo Beach project, we did install sharrows on the far side of the street in the opposite direction so that bicyclists that really wanted to ride in the street had the benefit of sharrows. I've been out there quite a few times. The number of people that use the sharrows is pretty small. And the number of people that I thought might have been of the type that would use the sharrow lanes, they seem to be pretty happy in the lanes. There are some steep hills, not so much on the phase that we're really focusing on. Phase one is going to go from the Dodger Stadium entrance area west and ultimately down Santa Monica to the metro station. The second phase will come down Sunset toward downtown Los Angeles, and that's pretty steep hill. And I can definitely relate. I would probably rather ride a bike in the wide travel lane knowing I can do 35, 40 miles an hour there. But I know there's no people that are going to trust a six or seven-year-old child ride in Sunset Boulevard under any condition. So it'll probably come down to some of the, the trade-offs we do during the design. But it's a factor I've always been aware of. And I've never been one to say we have to require everybody to use the infrastructure. Rather, I'm generally saying we want to build it so well that people want to use it. And then the test of whether it succeeded is how many people are riding it, right? The simplest test will be if it increases ridership. Having done projects like this first, the thing that's easiest to measure as an immediate change is generally if you measure male versus female riders, you'll usually get 75% male before you do anything. And if you do a really good job, you'll get 50-50. And that's a very easy criteria to measure in terms of if you're attracting additional people, just the way you see them. Plus, younger riders are also obviously something you see. Every time I see a family going out with their bicycles, I figure it's good infrastructure. And when I see a lone men bicyclists generally taking the lane very often, I'm knowing, well, they are courageous enough to ride on this street without infrastructure. That's probably not going to change because that's been the way it's been for the last 30 years. I'll talk to Jonathan about they've been through all this in Portland before, like on Figueroa, familiar with the project? Yes, I am. There was one statistic that Terrence put out there where bike riding went up by 600 and something percent. I mean, I don't know how they get their numbers, but that's amazing. Yeah, I've never seen it that high, but it is possible it's that high. A lot of streets with poorish infrastructure, you'll be lucky to get 10 to 15 bicycles an hour. There's already a lot more bikes than that on Sunset. I'm guessing it's probably on the verge of 100 bikes an hour right now. Better bike infrastructure usually will will jump over 200 within the first few weeks. Just the curiosity of checking it out. We, We saw that in Long Beach. I definitely saw that in Calgary. We pretty much saw a doubling of a substantial amount of bikes in Calgary literally overnight. And that was a city with a lot of one-way streets. So it's kind of like San Diego in many ways. A lot of people never been to Calgary, but I do like to say it's got 60-story buildings. And used to be the headquarters of Canadian oil. There is no Canadian oil anymore, apparently. But it was a very challenging downtown. It feels a lot like San Diego. And they're trying to do this in San Diego, putting cycle tracks on a lot of the wide one-way streets. You'd be looking at Calgary. And it's been quite successful there in terms of the increase in the composition of the identity of the riders. And there's been cyclists that would prefer to ride and travel lanes in every project. And they're not mailing me hate mail. They're probably disappointed that the politics eventually shifted towards the infrastructure solution. But they've still been able to ride bikes on the streets. I don't think that's ever going to change. So I think Jonathan has a question. 
Yeah, Rock, I'm curious. Can you say something about how that Sunset for All project integrate with other pieces of the network? One thing that's happened in Portland is that they'll build these islands of nice yeah. uh, bike facilities, but then on either side, you're back in the ocean yeah. to fend yeah. for yourself. So does it connect anything? I actually think Sunset is going to be one of the most strategically valuable segments that the city could build. Phase one isn't going to go into downtown. Phase two will go into downtown. As soon as we get beyond phase one, it will actually connect with a couple of relatively new cycle track installations on some of the key downtown streets of Los Angeles. So we're basically going to be connecting downtown Los Angeles infrastructure with the neighborhoods of Silver Lake and Echo Park, which are kind of the areas of Los Angeles where bicycle commuters are very apt to live and then want to ride their bikes to downtown Los Angeles. The other end of the project is initially going to terminate at a Red Line subway stop, which is very close to the Hollywood area. The thinking is if the city's bike master plan is fully implemented, this section of Sunset is identified to have separated bikeways, and they are to be carried further along Sunset to Hollywood Boulevard and actually go right through the center of Hollywood Boulevard, which would basically make it a huge tourist attraction, which reminds me, the section of Sunset is Old Route 66, and there is a desire that somehow the tie-in to Route 66 would become some kind of a theme of this project, and I do believe Ultimately, this project will have a lot of neighborhood streetscape type amenities to make the neighborhood feel a little bit different than it does now. And Route 66 could definitely become a component of that plan. So I think it's a tremendous potential. And I'd always said this is the one link that Los Angeles really needs. There's already a substantial existing amount of bike commuting on the street because of the lanes. But it's still somewhat limited by the fact that the lanes are kind of a challenge. And if you want to talk about door zone bike lanes, the lanes on Sunset are pretty standard examples. Great. Thanks. Thank you for coming on, Rock. And so when can we look for the protected lane on Sunset? I don't think I could give you a target right now. One of our goals is to come up with concept renderings that allow us to come up with cost estimates. And that cost estimate, you could do a bare bones paint and posts, which doesn't cost very much money, but has a lot of traffic issues. Or you could go for the whole thing. A lot of people talk budgets around a million a mile. I generally look for a budget more like three million a mile if I want to include landscape and modifying traffic signals and stuff like that. And the corridor is about four or five miles long. I don't even remember exactly how long it is, but we're looking at a very substantial project. On the other hand, uh, the state and to a certain extent, the federal government is putting out a lot of money for building high quality bike infrastructure. I think it'll be obvious to people as possibly the best bike commute route you could build in Los Angeles. I think it'll be quite high for uh, state and federal funding. Yeah. So where do we keep up with you on the project? If anybody sees you because of the Twitterverse, my uh, tweet handle appeared in all of your promotional materials, and people can probably contact me that way. I will be very active in anything that the Sunset for All group does in terms of publicity. I will be part of that. So, and you know, if you ask me to come on in uh, six or twelve months from now, I can probably tell you a little different story. For one thing, I'm not currently under contract, but we've had a lot of discussions, but probably within a month or two, I will. It has to do with their fundraising target. Okay. Well, very cool that you're doing it out of your own kindness. Yeah. I like to see more people riding bikes. And I've got a little time on my hands and it's just, I think, a good investment. 
thank you for having me on here. And again, a plea for more contributors, especially if you live in or near the project. Oh, yeah. And you even know, a dollar helps. You know the link offhand? It's Sunset Fall. I know their website is www.sunset4all. And I'm sure you can find your way from there. Plus, anybody that saw the promotion of this through tweets and the link, the, the link to it is through there. And if you can't find any other way, feel free to tweet to me. Uh, you thought I was crazy on that talk show, but you'd like to donate a dollar if you send me that tweet. All right. Thanks, um, Rock. So, Jonathan, you are the editor and founder of Bike Portland. Yeah, founder, editor, publisher, all the above. So tell me about it. Bike Portland's an independent news company, been covering cycling issues, everything related to cycling, culture, politics, tragedy, triumph, everything you can think of since 2005. So the site was one of the early bike blogs that came on back when blogging sort of first got really going here. And I've managed to stick around. So I've survived all these years and all the different changes and stuff. So um, it's not an advocacy group, not a nonprofit. Bike Portland is a documenter of the city, region, state to a lesser degree, but mostly we cover the local, hyper-local bike politics and projects and stuff like that. And you have a lot of institutional knowledge then of the history of biking in Portland. Well, yeah, I mean, that's my job. I like to think I know kind of what's been going on since I've been sort of on watch here going. So I guess I'm in year 16 now following closely what the city of Portland has been doing around bicycling and also Multnomah County and the state of Oregon. But the Bureau of Transportation here is the agency that I've been watching really closely for the last 16 years. Did it start taking off as a bike city when you began? earlier. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Bike Portland wouldn't exist if it wasn't for what was already happening here when I showed up on the scene. I like to think the site was sort of lighter fluid on a fire that was already burning. But Portland has a long history of being really great around transportation issues. We're the first city to refuse an interstate highway and really organize against what we call here locally as the Mount Hood Freeway. So this is the 1970s and the federal government came and said, hey, we'll give you nine out of every $10 if you just build this interstate, give you free money. And people organized and said, heck no, we don't want a big freeway. So this is 1970s. People in this area knew that freeways were not a good thing. So they essentially stopped that and were able to use that as a springboard to launching a light rail system and starting to invest and think about bicycling and walking. And then ever since then, the legacy continued. 80s, we had bike-friendly mayors. We had a bike-to-work day downtown, uh, probably one of the earliest ones. I think us in San Francisco were probably some of the earliest big cities in America that were really thinking about this stuff. And it's continued. The 90s, we were like the first city to have a blue-colored bike lane and, and a lot of other innovations that were first happening in Portland. And when Bike Portland got onto the scene was, I think, really sort of a golden era of Portland. We were repeat America's best bike city, you know, in terms of bicycling magazine. And really, I think definitely in North America, people looked up to us. It was always Portland and Montreal for North America, but in the U.S., Portland was really the brightest light on the hill in terms of a big city and bicycling. We always have the top commute rate in terms of the U.S. census number and stuff like that. But in the years since, we've definitely plateaued. Other cities have caught up a lot, and a lot of stuff has changed over 16 years. Other cities are catching up to Portland. How do you feel about that? I think it's great. If you believe in bicycling, it's not something you want to hoard at all. So I want everybody to do great things. I mean, yes, selfishly, I wish we were still ahead of everybody else because that would be more fun. 
and it would just be in a city that's doing amazing things. But it has changed the dynamic for me personally, and I think in the city in general, to really not be able to say confidently that we are just this great bike city. And I don't want to overstate how much I really care that we're the leading bike city. I just want us to do the right things and do them at a pace that I think is necessary, given what the conditions are, given where we're at with the climate crisis and all the other problems that we're facing. And that I believe strongly that the way we design our streets, the policies around mobility that we have, bicycling in general, is something that can fix a lot of that stuff, make it less bad, and just be such a great thing to make the city reach its potential. So that's kind of what we always have our eye on in terms of Bike Portland. My heart tends to get into the advocacy side and really talking like, you know, an activist, but I do try to resist that these days and try to step back a little bit and just think about doing stories and observing and trying to be removed from it a little bit so that I could see clearly what's actually going on. Yeah, I don't do that. I don't step back. <laughs> what, when you see clearly, how is that different from seeing like an advocate? Well, it's very different. And I've got a lot of lived experience in the perils of being strongly in that advocacy role. When I started Bike Portland and it was really coming on strong, I think 2007, 2008, after I've had a few years under my belt and people were looking at the site and saying, wow, we had a lot of people reading and it was pretty influential. Uh, I can remember being in City Hall and there was a certain controversial topic going on. And you know, I was in the mayor's office and the mayor basically closed the door behind me and said, hey, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? How are we going to fix this situation? looking at me like sort of wink, wink, you know, you're on my team and you're going to help me make this happen. And this was a bike-friendly mayor for what it's worth, quote unquote, bike-friendly mayor. So those kind of experiences really, it occurred to me then I'd been doing the site long enough to realize that I felt more like a reporter. And I knew that the independence of being a journalist was super important and something the community needed. And so to have a politician at that level assume that I'm going to be on their team it didn't feel right to me at all. And so that was one of the first situations where I started to actually intentionally extricate myself from a lot of these relationships I've had with city hall staff. Because any reporter can talk about access. It's really important to access journalism, right? It's like you're friendly with people in power so that you can have access to information, which is certainly how it works. But there are also a lot of perils to that. And I really don't like the complication and the mental baggage and burden that comes with people thinking that just because you cover bicycling and you care about bicycling, that you're somehow going to always speak the party line or always fall in line with what you're supposed to say in terms of what, quote unquote, we need for bikes now or what the city wants to do or what an advocacy group wants to do. So I've also had a lot of experiences I didn't like with advocacy groups in town, groups that are promoting biking where I don't necessarily agree with how they're doing it or stuff like that. So I have my own business, so I don't have a necessity to cater to funders or grants or a boss or a politician who's looking to look a certain way in the public and the media. So why would I constrain what I think needs to be done if I don't really have anybody to answer to other than the community and to myself? Well, that sounds responsible. (laughs) What's it been like being in the bike scene in the bikiest place in America for so long? It's always interesting to me. It's always changing, evolving. There's amazing things. There's things that bother me. It's everything. And increasingly in the last several years, as bike advocacy sort of writ large has understood that intersectionality is important and that we can't just always see things through bike color glasses, so to speak, and that there's a lot of other issues that matter when we talk about bicycling. That has added a whole other element to it that I think has just made it more interesting and more important. So it's interesting. During a normal week, I'll get super inspired by what's happening here in Portland and also just really disheartened and really annoyed at what's going on. So it's really just everything. (laughs) 
I don't plan on going anywhere. I mean, at this point, there's nothing else I could do, really. <laughs> I have to get to 20 years. I mean, I'm at 16. So if I can do a bike news company for 20 years, I think that'd be pretty fun. And, and it gets more fun every year, I think, in terms of I think longevity is valuable. I think having one person who can sort of stitch together all these narratives over time is important for the community. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, I do have new people coming in and I have sort of a team I'm getting built here, which is exciting. And I also recognize that I'm not the person that needs to be at the front and center of this thing for what would be obvious reasons if everybody was watching in the video of this, but maybe not just hearing it, which is middle-aged white guy right here, you know, so there's a lot of voices and a lot of perspectives that I can't fully understand and represent. So I'm bringing on other people to share the platform with and just trying to expand the kind of stuff we do and who's doing it to continue to make it relevant and right and good quality. And so the thing that we landed on that we're going to talk about, we went back and forth on Twitter. Yeah. We talked about the Mount Hood thing, freeway being turned down in the 70s, which I thought was interesting because the 70s is when the Netherlands started their ascent. And right. maybe there was an awareness that was worldwide at that time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's the American story of people thinking about the environment, save the whales, the hippies. I mean, all that stuff was also then, you know, 70s just so happens that our little bike boom in the 70s died because the auto industrial complex killed it. Basically, there wasn't enough there, there. And, and I mean, I wasn't alive to know really what happened. I'd love to know. Actually, I think there's probably some good books about it I should read. But yeah, I wish it would have survived. It's too bad that was a bike boom that kind of came and went because we could have taken a trajectory that was more similar to Amsterdam, Copenhagen. And instead, now we're just still light years behind. I like what you said about throwing lighter fluid on a fire. That makes me think of climate change. And it seems like people are scrambling right now. And people who are in the bike community or who are writing or talking about bikes are like, over here, right here, got what you need. And I think that hasn't even happened really yet. People haven't redesigned their cities the way they're about to. No, definitely not. It's frustrating. I think the bike movement has probably lost a lot of people to the climate movement to some degree and other things, (laughs) probably because people have seen that biking has not moved forward at an exciting pace to some degree. I think not just Portland is stagnating. I think in in general, there's a spin of stagnation over the last decade for various reasons. But even just like listening to previous guest Rock, I mean, think about what he was saying there. They're having a bake sale for a protected bike lane on one side of a road where all the elected said, do not disturb the amount of cars and the amount of driving that people can do. Basically, don't make any controversy. Don't do anything too hard or else we won't support this. And then even if you do that, apparently from what I heard, they're not even willing to put money on the table, like big money and make it a real project. And you have volunteers building this thing. I mean, that to me is just absolutely absurd and ridiculous if you think about where we are. And if you think about the potential Los Angeles and the location of that project, you know, I know there's some good advocacy in Los Angeles, but boy, if you're doing a GoFundMe to have a volunteer make CAD drawings of a, such an important bike facility, you've really got to look yourself in the mirror and think, what the hell's going on here? Why aren't we at the head of the table making our streets reflect what people want, what people need, which is to get out of their cars? And then we can make some progress on this climate issue instead of making these tiny little bike projects on the side that are not going to move the needle while people just continue to drive and and burn the planet up. I just don't understand why we're still doing that kind of stuff. It's really hard for me to just hear what Rock was saying. Well, I think part of it is there's this new awareness about climate change. I mean, the IPCC report that just came out seemed to all of a sudden get everybody talking in a slightly different way. And we have the same city council people that we had the whole time. And so that hasn't really changed yet. Right. I mean, I always think of evolution, right? Like conditions on the ground, culture, those things move quickly. 
And what doesn't move quickly are institutions, elected officials. It's very rare to find an elected official that can change as quickly as conditions on the ground. Bureaucracies definitely don't do that. Uh, advocates don't do that. I think to some degree, a lot of advocacy groups are still having trouble tilting up their sense of urgency and their timelines to reflect what their people want and what the earth needs, right? And that's challenging. And it's easy for me to say that because I'm basically a team of three or four people and I don't have, like I said, a big organization. So it's easy to sit here on the side and say that, but I, that is the case. You know, I always look at how do businesses, organizations, institutions, bureaucracies, how quick are they able to change and evolve with conditions on the ground? And it's that gap between what we need on the ground versus their ability to reflect that and change. The gap between there is where I think is exciting place to look in terms of how can you help those two lines meet better? That's what I try to bring to Bike Portland is like, what can we do to help those two lines meet more quickly? Giving people information they need through making people in power think twice about their pace of change, let's say, and trying to help them change more quickly and all that sort of stuff. Because like you said, I hear this huge gap between what people are talking about and the anxiety around climate and other issues, but obviously climate's a big one right now. And this gap between that and what they're being served. I mean, it's like, going into a restaurant just totally famished and hungry and you get served a plate of crackers. That's basically what's happening. Like what Rock was saying about that project. I feel like that's a good example. I mean, I know he's working in within constraints and it may, may not be his role to ask for a couple more plates and go hit the buffet, but you know, he's basically eating the crackers and it's just like, nobody's going to be satisfied after that meal. And so what's going to happen is it's not going to attract enough people that bike that's going to really move the needle. It's not going to make people driving be envious, which is what you have to do with every bike project. It's a competition. You have to make people who drive feel like idiots because they look over and they see how much fun and how healthy and how great and how convenient and easy the bikeway is, right? So every time you don't do that, that gap just keeps growing and growing and growing. So I don't know, you know, we've got to find a way to try to change that dynamic here in the U.S. And I'm always searching for, you know, who's doing it? Where's it happening? Can I use that to help people in Portland light a fire under them a little bit more? But that's our job. That's what we're all working toward. So the thing I decided we'd talk about is the protected bike lane battles within the bike community in Portland, because hmm. we're seeing that here. And it's dawning on me that part of the reason that we're seeing some of the people who bike the most in this exact area being the ones to oppose this is that they realize that it is a plate of crackers and they realize what it ought to be if we were getting what we should be getting. But at the same time, we also talked about how you don't want to disproportionately represent the bike community as being against it because it's really just the road warriors. I mean, I hate to call them that. They're not road warriors. They're people, but they tend to seem to be single men. And so if you're trying to get eight through 80 kids and old people and women, then you don't want to run the risk of talking to Rock the whole time about these problems that you think protected bike lanes have. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a huge mistake to segregate or create any kind of labels for people who ride bikes. I, I think that people who don't like biking, they love that. They want us to try to split things up into like, oh, this is a recreational cyclist. This is a utilitarian cyclist. This is a commuter. This is a racer. This is a there's all these labels that the bike people throw around. I really, really, really don't do that. I can talk about those things, but we have to be careful that we don't do that. You never hear road projects in terms of driving. You never hear them talking about if this 
bridge or if this lane or if this highway is going to a recreational destination or to like a commute destination, they don't do that. You never hear people talk about drivers in terms of like what kind of trips they're doing. Yet we always get into that mode when we talk about biking, whether it's just people being tourist route or it's a route to work. And I think that's silly because all that does is just slice things up into smaller, smaller pieces. To what Rock was saying about the idea that there are bike riders who don't like certain kinds of facilities. It's absolutely true. I think in some ways, I would make the argument that the worst enemy of biking in America is bikers themselves, because regardless of bikes, we have such an emphasis culturally in America about competition and about sport and about machismo and about masculinity, right? Toxic masculinity is a huge part of it. And so that just clouds everything because we get on our bikes. A lot of people bring that same mentality and it's like, how fast can I go? It's constantly comparing the speed of my bike, how light it is, all, all that junk that is just really holding down the American bike culture from really being something that can be broadly appealing and actually grow. And so you have these people, vehicular cycling or just strong veteran riders, a lot of it's selfishness in some ways. And that gets back to a lot of the issues we've been thinking about in the last couple of years here more so, which is white supremacy and privilege around, well, I don't like it or it doesn't work for me. So forget about it. I'm going to try to tank it and talk badly about it. So there's that. And that has been a problem in Portland as well. We have a huge diversity of people who ride bikes. People love to ride fast. They hold that as a badge of honor and they don't want to be corralled into a protected space and they want to be able to pass other people. That's a really big value of theirs. But I think in the end, it's also a problem of scarcity, which is another thing that sort of plagues the American bike scene and culture, which is this constant fight for scraps. There's only a few crumbs on the table. And so everybody's fighting for those instead of stepping back and looking at the big picture. I mean, you're seeing that on the national infrastructure funding conversation, right? The advocates are really worried that there's so much quote unquote highway money coming down the pike and not as much quote unquote bike money. Instead of maybe stepping back and going, well, why are we going to split that up? And why don't we work to make that highway money, bike money? I mean, if you have to make a road, let's pass a local ordinance that says it has to be spent in a way that improves biking. So these conversations about certain bike riders opposing protected bike lanes kind of explain why I think some of that happens. But it also is an issue of scarcity is because if people that want to put spandex on and want to go really fast, of which I've been one of those all my life, I've raced a lot and know all that stuff, which is why I feel like I can throw them a little bit of shade. If they want to do that, there should be a place for them to do that as well. But there's not. So if they go down Sunset Boulevard, in this case, with what we're talking about with Rock, and now they all of a sudden come to a facility that they don't feel works for them. Okay, I can understand why that's going to be frustrating. But ultimately, it's because that's the only road that they're going to be able to use, or we're not giving enough space on that road to facilitate all these different types of cycling behavior. And the car in its system, we have freeways. You want to go fast, get on a freeway. You want to go slower, get on an arterial, even slower, get on a residential street, right? So we have to think in those same terms for bike networks. And what we're trying to do, because we have such limited space and you have politicians saying that you can't have much space for biking is that we are in these positions of having to fit everything into this 10 foot wide thing. And then we fight with each other and then we start labeling each other, right? So you can see where that goes. It doesn't go somewhere good, but it's often about scarcity. These guys, they have valid points, which I don't think I would really do justice to. My co-host, Don, would have a lot to say. He's not opposing it, but he makes the point. A lot of people talk about intersections and how that can be dangerous if you're in a protected lane in an intersection. Well, it can be. But again, it is if you're trying to do it on a GoFundMe, right? But if you do it right and you remove 
uh, all the parking so you have better visibility, if you have signalization, if you have the actual built design of the bike lane sufficient and you're not using paint and plastic, if you're doing it right, then it's fine. And again, this is a bigger question than just how we design the bike lane. A lot of these conversations forget that the problem here isn't necessarily just the poor bike design. It's that our roadway culture is so broken and that we're trying to create a system for vulnerable people adjacent to a system of complete scofflaw, miscreant, reckless people that are absolutely irresponsible and are not made to take responsibility for what they're doing in terms of drivers. So that's difficult to do. If we assume that everybody in a car, which I think a lot of people do, that's kind of a given in these conversations, that people in cars aren't going to see you or are going to turn in front of you or are going to rage or be distracted, we're going to have a problem because it's not like that in Northern Europe, Amsterdam, in these other places, even in France, in Paris, where they're actually having a huge renaissance. I mean, I've ridden around Paris a lot. And when I was there several years ago, they had some of the similar facilities that Portland had, but there was one big difference. First of all, the cars were a lot smaller and the people who were driving the cars didn't want to kill me and didn't think that I was some lesser human because I was on a bike because the culture there is not as broken as ours in terms of bike car. So the culture of drivers is a huge part of that as well. What is the work that you see that you're inspired by having to do with changing the culture? Of drivers or bicycling? Well, either. Either. <laughs> well, that being said, I think if you do a good job on the bike culture piece and the bike infrastructure piece, you can sort of force the hand of drivers to act better or even adjust the street design piece. I mean, I'm a big fan of putting huge concrete barricades all over the city street network so that people who drive know if they mess up or they want to be jerks, they want to floor it, their car is going to get totaled and they may even have an injury of their own, right? So we just did a really inspiring thing here in Portland during COVID because there were so many people who started biking and walking. We didn't have enough room on the sidewalks and it became a big thing like a lot of other cities in the U.S., I think, sort of had COVID streets, right? So we had open streets. The city went out right when the pandemic was at its worst, and they put out a bunch of signs and plastic barrels and said, hey, go slow on these are streets. Everybody's going to be walking. That was really nice. And then just about last month or so, they went back and decided to make those permanent. So they got big concrete planters. These are hundreds and hundreds of pounds, huge concrete barrel planter things full of soil. And there's a sign in the middle that says 15 miles an hour. It's a yellow caution sign. They're starting with 80 of those. So that's really great. That's super exciting because that's all I've wanted for a long time is just put stuff in the street, put concrete in the street, because that not only creates safer space for cycling automatically, but it also changes the behavior of people in cars because it's an impediment and you just need to have more impediments on the road for drivers. We had a project in my neighborhood neighborhood was a protected bike lane project. And when the city went through the way they did it, they also put medians for crossings. They actually made the driving lane curved. So you had to actually turn your car to go down what's essentially a relatively large neighborhood street. And I think that was really something. That was a great thing that the city of Portland did is they're forcing people to have to turn when you go down a street because you got to miss that median. And then they're parking cars in the street now because they're using the cars as the protection for the bike lane. So the car parking is floating, they say. And then as you're driving, there's a car stopped in the street. So you actually have to turn. So that's great. And mm -hmm. I think if we do that on many, many, many miles of streets, very intentionally, methodically, we can start to change and start to get people to settle down because that is the biggest thing. When we talk about Amsterdam and Copenhagen, everybody talks about the bike lanes, but boy, the drivers are just chill. They'll drive right. 10 miles an hour behind you. They have shared streets there and they will actually idle at eight miles per hour behind an eight-year-old on a street without honking. <laughs> they will do that. It's that amazing, right? One of the first things I noticed when I first biked in Portland was the difference at an intersection. You felt that you had some power. And it's interesting. One thing people always say when they come to Portland, or a lot of people say, is that I can't believe everybody stopped for me when I got to the corner. Every time I step into the crosswalk, everybody stops. And I just think that's really wonderful and fantastic because it shows that we're making progress to doing that training aspect. 
a lot of that is street design. And a lot of that is our legacy of being a bike city and our legacy of being a city that has built itself in terms of land use and other policies so that people do walk. And so you do expect people to be there outside of a car, right? And that's really important. And then that does start to change the hearts and minds of drivers. And then you get to that fun thing, which is another piece of the Amsterdam Copenhagen conversation, which is those people driving also bike. And once you have both those perspectives in people's hearts, it just changes everything. I'm obviously a much different driver because I bike all the time. And I think anybody who drives that never has biked is going to have a lot more issues in terms of safety and not driving well than somebody who has biked before. So that's another encouragement to get as many people biking as you can, because you do start to change that curve of bad driving behaviors because you start to change people's perspectives. And that's right back to where we started. To get more people biking, you got to make protected lanes. Absolutely. Too bad they're not as easy as it sounds. Portland's had a lot of trouble building them. And I think we're maybe starting to figure it out now, but it's been awfully slow. I mean, I think we've built probably 38 miles or so. And like I said, we've been a leader in bicycling since the 90s. So do the math, right? That's pretty slow. We've been building about three, three and a half miles per year since we started building them in 2010 or so. So I think when we've actually built an intentional protected bike lane. So it, it hasn't been very quick. And a significant number of those miles are just plastic wands, which are being hit by drivers quite often. Actually, that's a, it's a whole separate problem. They can be uprooted easily, which is a really disturbing thing if you're biking and you see those things pummeled on the ground and you feel like that could be me or my friend or family. So yeah, Portland's had all these issues around just getting them on the ground, just make protection. That gets back to the politics of it and some of the other reasons why we haven't been able to build them as fast. All right. Well, we'll keep up with this and everything else you put out there at Bike Portland. And is Twitter your preferred? Well, yeah, we're everywhere now. We have an awesome YouTube channel. We're doing videos. We have a Bike Portland podcast. Put in Bike Portland in Google and you'll find key to the whole kingdom, I guess. <laughs> you'll find us. It's pretty simple. All right. Well, thanks, Jonathan, for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. So now I'm going to play an interview with Michael Schneider, who is the founder of Streets for All, which is a very active group in safe streets advocacy in Los Angeles. And he told me about some items that are coming before the city council this week that were postponed, but they wanted to put the word out. I'm Michael Schneider. I sit on the steering committee of Streets for All, a two-year-old LA-based organization that is fighting for an equitable use of our shared road space. And this week there were some action items. And if you would just tell us the story about those and why they matter. Yeah, so this week, the Los Angeles City Council's two different committees were scheduled to take up three different items. The Public Safety Committee was actually canceled. So that is going to be taken up in a couple of weeks, but we still want people to be aware of it. So let's start with transportation. The Bureau of Engineering has what they call a complete street program that never really actually produces complete streets. If you define them as being safe for all modalities, having bus lanes, bike lanes, and car space. And they propose three streets, Highland, La Brea, and Culver, to now take on and build what they're calling complete streets, which again, are not really complete streets. The really frustrating thing was La Brea is scheduled for a bus lane on our mobility plan. It's also where the Purple Line is about to open with a new station and the extension. And they left the bus lane out of the plan. And in fact, they even went so far in the report to say that they did study the bus lane, but they thought it was going to be kind of too much trouble and they're not going to do the bus lane. 
I've since gotten clarification that maybe the Bureau of Engineering isn't going to do the bus lane, but DOT is still going to do it. But regardless, it just sends a horrible message to people that we continue to ignore our mobility plan. The other two are in the Public Safety Committee. One is a motion to have a report back on how we could design streets to prevent illegal street racing, which, you know, most of LA design streets that look like highways, so people use them to race cars. So this will hopefully result in some political will to make some much needed changes to streets, including implementing the mobility plan because cars drive slower and they feel like they have less space and the lanes are narrower. The second one in public safety is a motion to do a report back on how to reduce illegal exhaust noise. I don't know about you, but where I live, we're woken up constantly by motorcycles and cars with illegally loud exhausts. And we really don't want more armed officers pulling people over. So we'd like to see things like clamping down on the shops that actually install these. And perhaps if we can do it in a way that is truly colorblind enforcement through cameras in the future, where we don't even look at the driver, we just know it's over the decibel limit, see the license plate and send a ticket. So those are the three things going on this week. And like I said, the public safety meeting was canceled. So those will likely be rescheduled in two more weeks. We'll let everyone know. But yeah, a lot going on at council this week. So the call to action for people? Uh, the call to action is to submit public comments. We sent out a, if you're not on the Streets for All list and you sign up at streetsforall.org, you'll get these messages. But we make it super easy. We prepared a template you can use. You can customize it in your own words, of course, and then submit it to LA's public comment system. Every single council file has a record of public comments that it's very easy to add to. So that would be the first call to action. It's harder to do because people are working during the day, but if people can call in to the committee meetings, even better, make the comment live. And can you find out which council people are on which committees? Yeah, absolutely. If someone just Googles public safety committee or transportation committee, they'll be able to easily see who's on it. And reading out to those council offices can be helpful too. Very good. All right. Thank you, Michael. And bring us more as it develops, if you would. Thank you, Nick. Shows I care Every turn of the pedal Cleans the air Green in the green I'm saving the planet Just like my friends Dale, Sean, Toby, and Janet No greenhouse gas A tiny carbon footprint Up your ass I'm on a motherfucking bike Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk If you want to hear more Go to kpfk.org Navigate to Programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the Archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group. 